0: I'm Laura and I'm Vanessa. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of a tap on the wrist podcast.
1: We've made it to episode seven and we've also made it to
0: 100 Instagram
1: followers. Yay! Actually, I think we're a little above that now. I know, but
0: that was a, a big milestone for us. We've set a couple milestones, so 100 Instagram followers is
1: really exciting. Yes. We're going to celebrate by ordering some business cards. <laughs> We're going to be real fancy now. We're getting official. We're being super mm-hmm. official.
0: If you're not following us on Instagram, you're missing out on all of the pictures from every episode. So
1: I feel know. like they're very helpful. I agree. Especially for episode five. Yes.
0: <laughs> for a second, it took me to remember. But if you have not listened to episode five and or not seen the pictures of the Sour Toe cocktail,
1: you need... Cocktail,
0: to. You need to immediately stop listening to episode 7
1: <laughs> and go to episode 5 and hey, listen to it. Hey, this is going to be a good one, too. <laughs> yes, but
0: episode 5 is toes down one of my favorites.
1: <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Anyways, but if you aren't following us on Instagram, we are at a tap on the wrist... And also the same on Twitter. Yes. Same, same username. And then our Gmail is tapontherispodcast at gmail.com. We haven't gotten story ideas from anyone, so I'm real disappointed in <laughs> everyone who's listening right I now. I know.
0: We need some topics, so send us your thoughts.
1: Oh, yeah. Even just, even just tweet us some topic choices. You don't even just give us a story. Mm-hmm. We'll look for the story. Tweet yeah. us or email us some topics. That would be great. Yeah. Are we ready for episode seven? We're ready.
0: Okay. So, with the theme this week being wine, which I should just preface this entire story by saying I'm not a wine drinker,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: and there are probably facts about wine that people who are wine
1: drinkers are going to be like, of course, Laura, duh. It's, um, <laughs> it's funny because Laura chose this theme, and I, I was like, oh, what theme do you want to do next week? And she was like, wine. And I was like, oh, uh, Okay. You know, I like to be <laughs> outside of my comfort zone. To be fair, I picked the beer theme too. Yes, so we like yes. both picked things outside of our normal thing. I mean,
0: right. And my story is pretty interesting. It's actually really interesting. But I'm just afraid that people are going to be listening and they're going to be like, that's not how you say that. That's not how you do that. And so I'm just, it's a blanket apology right now. <laughs> for every mispronounced word or miswine fact out there. Um, okay, so my story, we're going to start in Burgundy, which yeah. is the countryside. It's about three hours north of Paris, um, and it is home to some of the most prestigious wine productions in the world. So this region is known for exclusively one type of red grape, the Pinot Noir, which even I know what that is. Yeah, you've heard
1: of that one? I've heard of that one. <laughs>
0: However, they were like very, when I was um, reading this one particular art- article that I'm going to reference later, not all Pinot Noirs are the same, clearly. So like that's just the only great... Clearly?
1: I didn't know that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you've had different flavor or different... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They yeah. don't all I, taste I, I was the was same. And so like every, it's a lot like the way whiskey is kind of made. Like they'll yeah. make many different barrels and then mix them together. So that happens here. There's like different vines and they yeah. produce
1: slightly different wines. Some have like they, a flowery note, some right. have like a fruity. But
0: there's still, the grape grown in this region is the Pinot Noir grape. Okay. Like Burgundy is a relatively small area and it's just hundreds and hundreds of vineyards.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm going to share this story about um, what is quoted... And this is a quote by Robert Slay, who is a leading wine expert. Hands down the best and rarest Burgundy in the world. The holy grail of wines.
1: And apparently,
0: I mean, so this is a wine that clearly I've never heard of. Because (laughs) (laughs) I can maybe list five Wines on my hand, uh-huh. so I definitely don't know this one, and it's even one that many wine experts have never been able to test or try. Oh wow, it's very rare. So this is uh, the Romani Conti wine, and it comes. Nope, no idea. <laughs> I didn't think. <laughs> I know you like wine, but you're not. I'm when I tell you how much this wine is, you're gonna be like, yes, I will never try it. Uh, so. The vineyard is about four and a half acres. It only produces 450 cases of wine every year. So it's very limited. And according to this YouTube interview that I watched, and it was from 2017, a bottle of the 2009 Harvest, which was the Harvest that was like up for opening that year, was selling for how much? At Del Frisco Steakhouse in New
1: York City, I want you to guess. A glass or a bottle? A bottle. Five thousand dollars. No. Up, or, uh, up, up. Ten
0: thousand dollars. Up. Twenty thousand dollars. Down. Okay. Sixteen thousand dollars. <laughs> wow. For a bottle That's of insane. this wine. Yes. And so all of that, I mean, that, that's, like, way out of my price range. Like, I'd be afraid to... Yes, it's
1: way out of my price range <laughs> as well.
0: <laughs> I'd be afraid to, like, take a sip of this wine because I'd be like, yeah, it's wine. And then, you yeah. know, it would just be so embarrassing. <laughs> but so I wanted to share all that because it's even more frightening. The story that I'm going to tell is more frightening when you understand, like, how important this wine and, like, the magnitude it has on the world. Mm-hmm. So, this vineyard um, has been around for seemingly ever. It's like, it traces all the way back to like 1200 something. Uh, For five centuries, the land was owned um, by monks. And then it was given over to a prince at one point. And like the one anecdote I found about the prince was that he would produce the wine every year and not sell it you just kept it all for personal consumption. And then eventually it was passed on and it was turned over to the Velaine family who are the current owners. And it's passed on from... Um, throughout the Valaine family. Do we know how long... Like when they got it? Or didn't really say? I don't really know. Okay. I mean, it's very... It's just... And it's not always passed down to the kids. Like the owner of... The vineyard, what I'm telling the story, which is in about 2010, is not the current owner now. His nieces and nephews own it. Okay. So, because he didn't have kids, so, but it's always been in the family.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and even through world wars oh, and wow. everything, yeah, this yeah. region was never touched because of how like precious their grapes were. That like wars were fought around it. Huh. Crazy. Okay, so we're going to start um, in January of 2010 with the owner at the time being Aubert de Villaine, and the um, he's the owner of the Romani Conte Vineyard. Mm-hmm. He gets an anonymous package in his mail, and he's like, okay, let's open this strange cylindrical package. Uh, so it looks a lot like architect's plans, right? Like the package is those like round c- or cylinder tubes. Yeah. And he opens it, and inside is a roll of paper. He unrolls the document to find a precise drawing of his four-and-a-half-acre vineyard. And the drawing is, like, every angle of the vineyard is captured, every, like, nook and cranny, even as much as all 20,000 vine stocks have been noted on this drawing of this vineyard.
1: Oh, so it's like a technical drawing... Yeah, I can't speak. Drawing, yes, drawing, yes, I can't talk. Technical, <laughs> technical, not like oh, this is like a pretty print of my no, it's like, of blue, someone. it's like
0: blue, it's like blueprint yeah. of the vineyard, which is weird, like, yeah, to have known the vineyard that closely and been able to draw it. And then along with it is a note. So, so, there's the drawing of all 20,000 vines. In the center of the document, a giant circle has been drawn. And a note that says the vineyard would be destroyed if the following demands were not met. And it said the demands would be sent in about two weeks.
1: It's a long wait
0: time. It is a long wait time. And Aubert is kind of like, yeah, it's nothing. I don't believe it. It's like yeah. a, a prank that you know, someone else is doing. it. he kind of shrugged it off and didn't think anything of it. Uh So two weeks go by. Now we're in like mid January and a second package arrives on his doorstep. Again, it's like an architect's cylinder and it has another drawing of the vineyard. But this time, in addition to this, the drawing, the circle in the center of the vineyard, there's a smaller circle in the top left-hand corner and the instructions on this second map have X's on some of the vines and in the smaller circle on the top left-hand corner there are two X's drawn on top of vines and it says these two vines have already been poisoned and are dead and then in the larger circle in the center of the vineyard there's about 80 and there are X's on them as well, and it says, these vines have been poisoned, but if you give me one million euros, I will give you the antidote to the poison, and you can save them. Damn. And it's like, what is this? Like, what kind of crazy plot is this? Um, so, Aubert is a little bit more concerned at this yeah. second package. It is showing, you know, actual damage to his vineyard, and he goes and investigates, and sure enough, the two plants that were marked in the top left corner of the vineyard are dying. None of the ones around it are, just those two that had been marked. Uh, So he contacts the police. However, he, he doesn't want to go to the local police in Burgundy because if it is kind of a prank, or he's really just more afraid of it getting out to Uh the other vineyards that his vineyard has been poisoned, and then his entire harvest could be ruined or the reputation of his vineyard. Right. So, him kind of being a man of means, he contacts someone he knows from Paris, and they are able to send out police from Paris and Dijon up to Burgundy And so he kind of, like, circumvents the local police so that rumors don't spread Mm -hmm. within Burgundy. And they come and they investigate and they remove the two killed vines from his property. They look at the other 80 vines that were said to have been poisoned and there are drill marks in the vine. They do find out that the poison is injected into those drill holes. So they know that someone has drilled into the plant and then with a syringe injected the poison into the vine. Okay. So so he is really worried. And he, you know, asked the police, what what do I do? Do I leave the ransom money where he's been told? He's been told to leave it a million euros in a suitcase in like a section of the vineyard on a particular night. Okay. So these are the instructions. And he he doesn't, he kind of just wants to do it. He wants to get the anecdote and move on before any other damage is done to his property. On February 4th, so he's given two weeks to collect these million euros. It's the drop day, and Aubert follows the directions that the police give him. They say, do not leave the money on February 4th. So instead, he leaves a note in a suitcase in the vineyard for this person. And the note basically says, I will pay you the ransom. I need more time to collect it. I don't have that kind of money on hand, but I will get it for you. Like send me further instructions on a different date.
1: Uh-huh. So
0: he gets a third package. But uh, like
1: no one sees the person that goes to pick up the case. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I can... like it's a vineyard. It's not a public place that like anyone could have strolled by in cash, picked it up. I know. I, don't <laughs> understand.
0: I guess they were trying to, like, catch the person who did it, but also save the vines. Like, had they just arrested this person that night, there's the risk that all 80 vines would never be fixed. Because he, at that point, wouldn't give up. The The anecdote, right. So... He gets a third package, and inside is, like, a very friendly, cordial letter that says, okay, fine, like, <laughs> I'll give you more time to collect We're the totally money. We're cool. Right. Um, and gives him a date of February 12th, which is really only, like, seven additional days. Yeah. And this time, the instructions stay to put the million euros in a suitcase, and not to leave it on the vineyard, but to leave it inside a cemetery in the next town over okay and like totally creepy very creepy but I also I like paused at this point and I was like I believe like that criminal had to think the police are not involved right because right. of what we were just talking about he got away with going and picking up the ransom suitcase so this criminal has to believe O'Bear has not gone to the police right or they would have caught him by now right so, cause it's just he's just being too polite. Like, oh, I want a million euros by February fourth. Oh, you need more time?
1: Okay. Like, just bring it to the cemetery.
0: Yeah, like it's just. Is he a ghost? It's really weird. <laughs> so I, I started to question this criminal and like
1: his mind. You're judging a criminal. Yes. <laughs> um, you could have done and, this crime better, yeah, sir. Exactly. <laughs>
0: I have to believe he's involved in the wine world to have attacked this vineyard. Right. Of all the vineyards he could attack, he chose... like, a
1: rando person isn't going to think of this one super expensive vineyard. Right. And then to take the time to, like, scope it out and draw it and... And know what could kill the vines and cure them. Right. So he's... I'm just questioning his criminal mind.
0: Yeah. I, I don't... I mean, it's hard for me because I do know what happens, (laughs) but, okay, so fast forward to the night of February 12th, this is the night that they're going to drop the million euros in the cemetery, and Aubert has to go out of town for a business trip, and the police tell him he should run business as usual. If he cancels a business trip, people are going to question why he's canceling business trips. And so, he needs to find, like, a drop man to drop this million euros. So, he gets his second-in-command. His name is, um, I think it's probably, like, Jean-Charles Clouvier. It's some French name. Sounds good to me. Uh, And so, this is his right-hand man. He's going to do the drop. Aubert leaves town, goes on his business trip, and... Clouvier meets with the police that morning to go over the plans for the night. And basically, their plan is as simple as simple can be. He's going to put one million fake euros in a suitcase with a transmitting device. He's going to walk into the cemetery, drop it off, walk out, and leave. And they are going to have undercover cops hidden in the cemetery. Okay. Because
1: just, just people hanging out in the cemetery. <laughs> well,
0: I guess they believe this criminal just walked into the vineyard to pick up a million euro suitcase to find Aubert's note. He's just gonna walk into the cemetery to pick up the million euros in a suitcase. Grieving
1: people around her whatever they're faking I mean, it's
0: it's like the middle of the night. It's like, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: Then why would there be a bunch of random people in the cemetery?
0: I think they're hiding. I don't think it's, (laughs) you know, uh, I'm I'm imagining like all black behind tombstones. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not really sure how French police do it. (laughs) Um, So at 11 o'clock, that's exactly what happens. Clouvier enters the cemetery. He makes his way to the flower box that he's supposed to drop the suitcase off. Drops it off. There's no incident. He drops it off. He walks out. He gets in his car. He drives away. And he just waits. And in less than 30 minutes, the police call him, and they have caught the criminal. Like, that's how simple it was. So, like, 10 minutes after Clouvier leaves, Uh this man, Jacques Soltis... Walks into the cemetery by foot, picks up the suitcase, leaves the cemetery, and is headed for a local train station when the police walk up and arrest him. Like, there's no struggle. There's no pain. And, like They have the guy who did it. They just now have to figure out why he did it. Right. And so, it's like the most ridiculous... Criminal catch ever? Like I wanted there to so be so easy. I wanted there to be like a struggle. I wanted there to be a, a bait and switch, something like but, that.
1: Wasn't really the guy, right?
0: But that's not the case. And so it turns out, Soltis kind of has a very interesting backstory. He did grow up in wine. Uh, his parents owned a very small vineyard as a when he was a kid. However, he had always been a little bit troubled, so much so that his parents sent him away to boarding school and he kept being kicked out of school. And then they would just send him to another school because he was too much to have at home. And at a very young age, he kind of started doing criminal, you know, small criminal crimes. And then by his late 50s, which is where he is when he comes up with this plot for the vineyard. You know, he has a lifelong history. And, you know, things like armed robbery and kidnapping. He'd Mm -hmm. spent years in jail. So when they start to look into him, it's not that shocking that he would have come up with a plot like this. Right. And they do a little bit more digging, and they find out that the Romani Conti vineyard is not the only vineyard he had targeted At the same time as this, he was also targeting um, the Domaine Comte Georges de Vogue vineyard. Oh wow! (laughs) Which sounds very, very fancy. With the exact same plan, he had drawn up, you know, like the the blueprints, sent them a ransom. So it was really interesting, and he had done it with intense planning. So, for each... Really not enough. Well, I think he knew that these vineyard owners would want to, like, keep it as quiet as possible.
1: Mm, He didn't count on this guy going to the cops.
0: Correct. He just, like, a million euros is nothing for this guy. He's going to pay me to save his vineyard. Mm -hmm. And he's going to want no media attention. Or his wine reputation will be over. Which is probably what would have happened had Aubert not gone to the police. He would have just paid it right, and the world wouldn't have known about this story. And very few people in the world do know about the story which we'll get to later. But what he had done for each vineyard is he built a shack deep in the woods somewhere near the hills of the vineyards and he would sleep in the shack and then go down at night and, like, take the drawings and the notes so that he could draw these very elaborate diagrams that he eventually mailed to the owners. And he would, when he did poison the vines, he would go with, like, a hand, like, a regular handless wireless drill, and he was, like, drilling into the vines and injecting them with a syringe um, of, like, weed killer like, every day common they name Roundup. Oh, wow. And, like, it was just, like, something you could buy at any store. And that's what he was injecting into these vines that, I guess, you know, had such care that, like, the weed killer just ruins them. Was there a cure for them, though? Okay, we're going good. That. <laughs> uh, so, inside one of his makeshift vines, they find a sleeping bag, a couch, a hot plate, a change of clothes... Clothes that looked like a lab- or like a vineyard laborer. So sometimes I guess he might go during the day as well and just blend in with everyone else working. Right. Batteries, a headlamp, a cordless drill kit, syringes, and many bottles of the weed killer roundup. And a handgun. And so, I mean, this was just like his, his workspace. Yeah. And he would go and sleep in the shack during the day and then at night go down into the vineyard and do his work. And then go back to his shack. So he's not dumb; like he yeah. had a plan. Um, and then to mail all the packages, though he did have an accomplice, um, and it was his son. And so his son would mail the packages from Paris, and so that they would get okay. to the vineyard owners. So his police, the police, actually arrest his son as well as an accomplice. And it it turns out that. The 80 vines that had the drill holes had never been injected with the weed killer. It was, like, all a faux
1: Oh. He like only did he, it to the two. He
0: only killed the two. Because he really thought, this guy is going to go to the police. Or not going to go to the police. He's going to pay me. I'm going to give him some fake, probably, like, water in a spray bottle. Yeah.
1: And we're going to be done here.
0: And walk huh. away with a million euros. But then, Aubert did go to the police, so... And had
1: he not had... Connections to police in Paris, he probably wouldn't have. You like he probably yeah. wouldn't. He probably would have paid the million euros. Yeah, and so yeah. this criminal just had bad luck. He did, and so <laughs>
0: the police are so excited. They're like, "We stopped this plot. We saved, you know, not only these two vineyards, but him from doing this over and over again. Because mm-hmm. had it been successful, I mean, he could have just replicated this same yeah. plan over and over again." Um. So the police are excited. They've got him. They have evidence. You know he has all but said he's guilty um, because they caught him red-handed with the money. So, but the story isn't over because they go to Aubert and they say, you know, we're going to press charges, and he's like, uh, I don't want to. I don't want a trial. I don't want the media attention of a trial. This still could ruin my harvest and my wine's reputation can't we just get this done and over with like behind yeah closed doors and the police are like well not really like we need to go to trial and i was i was doing a little bit of reading but the um it seems like the french judicial system runs differently than the american judicial system it's very much like all of the evidence is presented to a judge and the judge goes through the evidence like for both sides um, it's not so much a trial where like the attorneys are presenting evidence they just hand everything to the judge and the judge then decides Um, but Aubert was like I don't want any of that I want closed door yeah, you know and so it takes a while for them to kind of come to an agreement and what happens is in July of 2010, so this is you know four or five months after uh, Jacques Soltis is arrested, he ends up hanging himself in a bathroom in his prison oh cell, God. and so at that point it's now extremely difficult to pursue the case right without him, and they have to decide whether they're going to try his son as uh-huh. an accomplice and. That but with his suicide, it brings more media attention to the case. And Aubert, like, shuts it down. He does not want to see this through. He just, he's like, the man is dead. My vineyard is safe. Like, shut it down. But the police won't listen to him. Yeah. Uh, and he is most worried that. By bringing media attention to this, yes, it might it might harm his reputation, but it might inspire copycat criminals. Fair point. And so the other vineyard owners in the Burgundy region who have now become aware of what has happened back Aubert, and uh-huh. they're like, we agreed. We don't want this exposed. We don't want people targeting our vines. Because they had been open to things like extortion And, you know, robberies of, you know, bottles of wine. But this idea of targeting the vines themselves had never been done before. And they didn't want people to know that that was a possibility. So they were just like, please, like, drop this case. Don't do anything. The police really don't listen. They decide they are going to go after his son. And then the story just ends. Like, there is no news about his son, so I'm guessing they eventually listened and dropped yeah. the case. But you can find no news article. It's hard to even find anything about this case. There is one real article, and that's the article that I got most of my information, and it's from Vanity Fair, and um, it's from 2011. So it was oh,
1: damn, right. So it's. Been a while. Right after. No updates.
0: Right. Except the author and hold on, I'm gonna Google his name because I apparently didn't copy it down. Um, so the article is titled and everyone should go and read it because it's really fascinating and it has even more details than I shared. Um, but it's called The Assassin in the Vineyard is the name of the article on Vanity Fair. Cool name. Um, and then the author of that article, which I'm I'm getting there, it's loading.
1: Sounds like a mystery novel. The it assassin does. in the vineyard.
0: He went on to write a full novel regarding, oh. like he did, it went, have the same name. <laughs> it has a similar name. The, the article from Vanity Fair is called "The Assassin in the Vineyard" and it's by Maximilian Potter. And he then goes on to write a book called "Shadows in the Vineyard," and it just is a more in-depth look at this case, and it's years later, so I guess he does continue yeah. to find information, and it's about you know the true story of the plot to poison this vineyard. Did uh, you say his
1: last name was Potter? Like Harry Potter? Yes. Nice. <laughs> yes. Yes, I did. Uh,
0: but it's so interesting that the story just kind of ends. Like, they yeah. did not want the media attention. Very few... And there would be, like, tiny bubbles here and there, is what they said. Like, the New York Times had one article, and it was, like, a very small column about it. uh, You know, it never really blew up, which is surprising, because people love to see the downfall of successful things, I feel. And so, this being such a prestigious wine, and at such a cost per bottle... To, for them to have not had that suffer is lovely. The wine is even more expensive now. So Really? That was like a 2009 bottle was about 16,000 and now like the bottles are like upwards of like 20 22,000. Damn. And it's just mind-blowing that people have that much
1: money to spend on wine. I just can't imagine. It's wild that like like that you can't find anything now. Like, it's, post them saying they were going after the sun. Right. They like, must have not. They, like... Right.
0: And he actually... Like, if you type in, like, Romani Conti vineyard, it's, it's literally story after story of the awards they've won, of how great the wine is, and then you'll find the Vanity Fair article about this. And then in 2013, they had a big plot of people selling fake... Romani Conti wines, uh-huh. and that kind of spread a little bit more than this plot that I told you about. Right,
1: because that wouldn't hurt their reputation. Right, that like, was like,
0: yeah. oh, people made millions of dollars on fake bottles. But other than that, it's, I mean, it literally is just
1: known for how fantastic it is. It's crazy. I know. Well... Maybe one day we'll try that wine. I doubt it. I doubt it. <laughs> I wouldn't
0: want to. I feel like I would do it an injustice. Yeah, I'd be like, it's a uh,
1: red wine. Yep. Yeah, tastes like tastes like red wine. <laughs> <laughs> so my story today is definitely less fancy. It's uh, it's about wine and cocaine. Oh, <laughs> and it's in America, of course. <laughs> wine <and cocaine>. yeah. <laughs> so it's about Pemberton's French wine, mm-hmm. Coca which was created by John Sith Pemberton. Um, Do you have any guesses on what he eventually created? Coca-Cola. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He eventually creates Coca-Cola. But first, Pemberton's French wine, Coca. So a little bit of background on Pemberton. He fought in the American Civil War, and during the Battle of Columbus in April of 1865, he sustained a saber wound to the chest. That's Badass. (laughs) Just a a casual saver wound to the chest. We don't have injuries like that anymore. No. Um, So as a result of that, he tried to ease his pain with morphine, which is not that surprising. And he got addicted, unfortunately. Also not that surprising. Um, So after a while of being addicted, he tried to experiment with other drugs to find some kind of relief. I guess he wanted to just go from one drug to another. So his first attempt was called Dr. Tuggle's Compound Syrup of Globe Flour. Dr. Tuggles? (laughs) Dr. Tuggles. This is... Oh, by the way, this is all from Wikipedia and from an Atlantic article called Why We Took Cocaine Out of Soda by James Hamblin. I can't wait to find out why, because... (laughs) Um, So his... Back to Dr. Tuggles. Back to Dr. Tuggles. (laughs) That... That compound syrup had the active ingredient, an active ingredient called buttonbush, which is a toxic plant common in Alaska. So after a while, he decided to stop using that toxic plant, and he instead went to coca and coca wines. The most popular coca wine at the time was a wine called Vin Mariani, I think, by Parisian chemist Angelo Mariani, and he created it in one thousand, eight hundred and sixty-three. And basically, what coca wine is is it's a combination of cocaine and wine. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, I mean, it's not surprising, but
0: like that, it blows my mind to think that that at one time would be a normal thing. Like, yeah. Hey, here's your
1: cocaine wine. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the combination of cocaine and wine is called coca ethy- ethylene, or you know, just a, a good time. <laughs> I'm kidding, I don't do cocaine. <laughs> um, but. Vin oh, Mar- <laughs> so Vin Marion was made with Bordeaux wine and coca leaves. Okay, so this is from Wikipedia. It's a quote that's about how the coca wine was created, and it says, The ethanol in the wine acted as a solvent and extracted the co- cocaine from the coca leaves, altering the drink's effect. And apparently cocoa wine had some really big fans like Jules Verne, Alexander Dumas, and Arthur Conan Doyle, some famous authors. I was going to say that explains their writing (laughs) way more. And even Pope Leo VIII reportedly carried a flask of it around and appeared on a poster endorsing the wine. And he also awarded a Vatican Gold Medal to Mariani for creating it. Wow. So the Pope was into some cocaine wine. I mean, I feel like a lot of people be getting <laughs> into cocaine wine, honestly. There are some others that you'll be familiar with, like Thomas Edison and Ulysses S. Grant, who liked to dabble in drinking cocaine wine. So what I'm hearing here <laughs> is cocaine, cocaine wine and success <laughs> go hand in hand. Well, Edison was quoted to say that it helped him stay awake longer, which, like, no shit, it's cocaine. <laughs> That's
0: crazy. I'm still, I'm like... I'm still in my head processing the fact that cocaine comes from a leaf. Coca. Leaf. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I've never really thought about the way cocaine is made. It's just. (laughs) It's not something you think about? (laughs) Like, my knowledge of cocaine is a powdery white substance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But obviously it comes from somewhere. I just never thought of it as being like a leaf that then is dried and ground into what we know. So the idea that they just like put these leaves and then the wine like extracts it. Yeah. Is interesting. Yeah. Cause in my head I was thinking they were taking powdered cocaine and like and, stirring, like, it, stirring in.
1: it. in. Waiting <laughs> for it to dissolve. Right. <laughs> um <laughs> But There's no. just some coke no. on the bottom. <laughs> nope. <laughs> um so seeing how successful the Vin Marion was, Pemberton was like, I can do that in America. And probably sell it for cheaper. Of course. So he created Pemberton's French wine coca. He still wanted to (laughs) link it to France. So he claimed that his French wine coca was a pancia, which, for those of you who don't know, is a supposed remedy that is claimed to cure all diseases and prolong life indefinitely, according to Wikipedia. So we don't have those anymore. (laughs) Because they were probably never real. Right. (laughs) So, one of his claims was that it was a most wonderful invigorator of sexual organs. That was one of his... Because
0: it's cocaine. Yes. So, in in in
1: an 1885 interview with the Atlanta Journal, Pemberton claims the drink would benefit scientists, scholars, poets, diviners, lawyers, physicians, and others devoted to extreme mental exertion. And in advertisements, he claims that it was a cure for things like nerve trouble, Mental, mental, and physical exhaustion, gastric irritability, constipation, headaches, impotence, and a cure for morphine addiction.
0: <laughs> okay, because <laughs> then you just become addicted to <laughs> cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> like...
1: <laughs> oh gosh. Oh man. Thank God for the FDA, huh? Yeah. So he had some success with his French wine coca, but sad times. Prohibition was passed in the county where he lived in Georgia. Not the nationwide prohibition or the 18th Amendment that like we all know about. It was just a smaller active prohibition in Atlanta and Fulton County. So wine became illegal and he could no longer make his French wine coca. But luckily cocaine was not illegal. So he could keep Woo. using that. Thank God. <laughs> he just um, had to figure out another way. How. Yeah. So he decided to try, try and figure out how to make a version of it without the wine. So along with an Atlanta drugstore owner and proprietor named Willis Willis E. Venable, they tried to perfect this new recipe, which they formulated by trial and error. And eventually they came up with, as you said, an early version mm-hmm. of Coca-Cola, using sugar syrup instead of wine. Hmm. So Frank Mason Robinson, who, according to Wikipedia, was an important early marketer and advertiser of what became known as Coca-Cola, is the one who came up with the name Coca-Cola for the alliterative sound um, and kind of touching on the two main ingredients, which was the cocaine and then the cola nut, which is where the caffeine came from. Interesting. Interesting. Yes, and so Pemberton's new product debuted in 1886, and the slogan was Coca-Cola, the temperance drink.
0: (laughs) Wow.
1: No more coca wine, but you can have some sugary cocaine. You can still drink your cocaine. Yeah, with sugar instead. That's
0: fascinating (laughs) when you think about how much Coke is a part of everyday life today. Like, Coca-Cola. <laughs> <Because> I
1: thought you meant cocaine!
0: Well, that too, but no. <laughs> but, like, the fact that Coca-Cola comes from cocaine, from wine, and, like, it's just, it's all fascinating when you know the history behind it.
1: Yeah, it was super interesting, and, like, obviously my story turns into not being about wine, but started with wine, and I found it interesting. Mm-hmm. No, it's perfect. <laughs> Pemberton, of course, made, again, many health claims for Coca-Cola, just like he did with his Coca-Wine. Um, he said it was a valuable brain tonic that would cure headaches, relieve exhaustion, and calm nerves, just kind of like what he said about the other one. Um, and he marketed it as delicious, refreshing, pure joy, exhilarating, and invigorating, which I feel like is still how like, like,
0: marketed. <laughs> I was like, I feel like that was the Coke commercial on TV last night. <laughs>
1: When I read that, I was like, they haven't changed their approach much, huh?
0: Invigorating, I think, is a word they use in their ad campaign.
1: And exhilarating. Refreshing, for sure. Refreshing, for sure. I was just like, that sounds exactly like what they say now. Unfortunately, soon after Coca-Cola hit the market, Pemberton fell ill and nearly bankrupt. So he began selling all of his rights to the formula to his business partners in Atlanta. That, Um, That poor man. Yeah. And he was apparently still addicted to morphine. So when he said his French wine cocoa was a cure for morphine addiction, he was a liar. Apparently, cocaine cannot substitute morphine. Poor guy. Okay. He did, however, have a hunch that someday his formula would become a national drink. He was was correct, correct. And he attempted to retain a share of the ownership to leave to his son. But his son. Not to talk ill of the dead because I'm sure he's dead by now, was an idiot and wanted the money up front. Um, so in 1888, Pemberton and his son sold the remaining portion of his patent to fellow Atlant- Atlanta pharmacist Asa Griggs Candler for $1,750. Oh my goodness, can you imagine how much his family would have now had they not sold for like under 2k? That's crazy. The Pemberton family must be so mad at that guy. agree. <laughs> yeah. Shortly after they sold it in eighteen eighty-eight, John Pemberton died from stomach cancer at the age of fifty-seven.
0: Which, so
1: it's also not a cure-all, because no, you know, no. I mean, it didn't cure his morphine addiction. It didn't cure his stomach, stomach cancer, cancer. So it was not a panacea, as he claimed. So the prohibition of cocaine in the United States didn't happen until nineteen fourteen via the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act. And around the same time, Coca-Cola's first president, Asa Candler, who's the person that they sold sold to, um, became concerned about cocaine, as he probably should have, um, and decided to remove any traces of the drug from his drink. So, in 1904, instead of using fresh coca leaves, they started using spent leaves. So, basically... (laughs) Whoever was still making cocaine would, <laughs> would extract the cocaine, and the leftovers of the coca leaves would then be used in this process. Um, so they'd use these spent leaves, but leftovers of that of the cocaine was still were still kind of in there. So there were still trace amounts of cocaine right, in but- Coke until about nineteen twenty nine. I believe is what I read. Um, and since 1929, they've now been using a cocaine-free coca leaf extract that is prepared at the Steppen Company at a plant in Maywood, New Jersey. That's okay. very hard to get into, apparently. A cocaine-free... Wait, I want to read that sentence again. <laughs> <laughs> so they used a cocaine-free mm-hmm. coca leaf extract... So they're still extracting something from the coca leaf, but it's not cocaine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> as we know, Coca-Cola's recipe is very secretive. And the Atlantic article said, obviously, as I just said, that the coca is still being used. But the he says that the I don't know how to say this, eggonin alkoid is removed. Oh, that from sounds it, right. Whatever that is, and I'm sure I said it wrong. But, like, imagine they hadn't changed the recipe and there was still cocaine in Coke today.
0: It'd probably still be just as popular as it is.
1: It Maybe even more popular than it
0: is. There'd be no Coke versus Pepsi debate. Yeah, yeah, Everyone
1: would be like, I need this stuff. It makes me feel good. <laughs>
0: just all the Coke, all hey. the time.
1: <laughs> but, nope. They, <sighs> they removed it. Damn them. I know. <laughs>
0: I just, I can't imagine, I mean... Coke is seen as such a, obviously, negative, addictive drug. So for it to have been part of, like, everyday life and this, like, drink that you could just buy anywhere mm-hmm. is just so crazy.
1: I know. I wish I could just, like, one time try Coca-Cola with cocaine in it. <laughs> just once. <laughs> just once. But not, like, not like just Coke I'd get off the street and mix into, a, like like, the original recipe. Like, I just, like... <laughs> Wish I could try the original (laughs) recipe one time just to see what it was like. (laughs) I'm sure that someone out
0: there has made it. Like, I'm sure we could YouTube that. And there's a how to make original Coke, Coke.
1: (laughs) We're not going to do that, though, if any police officers are listening. (laughs) No. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, now it's time for our cocaine-free cocktail (laughs) or drink or bar of the week. Well, now
0: I'm out of ideas. <laughs> <cooking free. laughs> no, um, we recently went to an event in Brooklyn called True Crime Trivia, which is hosted by someone who lives local where we live. And, right. Uh, we've gone a couple times in Queens, and this time we ventured to Brooklyn.
1: It's um, called Yellow Tape for anyone who is into true crime trivia. You can look that up.
0: Yeah. But we went to this comedy club in Brooklyn called Eastville Comedy Club, and it was, like, it was kind of later on a work night. I want to say it started at, like, 8 o'clock at night. Yeah. And I got there, and I don't typically drink on weeknights, but I just needed a drink. It had been one of those days. Mm -hmm. And I was waiting for Vanessa to get there, so I was by myself at this tiny little bar in this comedy club. And they had all these cocktails, and there was one that just stood out that I had to have, and it was a bourbon tea lemonade. Mm -hmm. So it was, like, everything I want in a refreshing summer drink, like an iced tea lemonade, just with bourbon to get me through my long day. Um, And so it wasn't anything crazy, but, I mean, it was good, and it was refreshing, and it was just what I needed after, like, a long work day.
1: Yeah, I remember getting there, and you were already at the bar (laughs) with your drink, like... (laughs) I was like, oh, she's ready. She's ready to do some true crime trivia. We with... did
0: really well. We won that Oh, night. yeah, we did
1: win. Yeah. I think there's a picture of us somewhere, actually. Yeah, maybe we'll post it. Yeah, we can post our our, our victorious <laughs> picture. Yes.
0: But um, if you're in New York, you should come to True Crime Trivia. Uh, you could also go to Eastville Comedy Club. I think they do different things I'm all, sure. yeah. all the time. But anytime you take a refreshing drink and add a little bit of alcohol, it just makes the drink even better. I agree. I agree.
1: All right. Well, again, guys, just to plug our social media again, it's at a tap on the wrist. On Twitter and Instagram. Yep. And tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. It is. And I feel like I always say the email. This feels weirdly (laughs) (laughs) reversed. I felt very hesitant. (laughs) You went
0: with it, so I just followed.
1: Yeah. All right, guys. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll talk to you next week. Yeah. Cheers.